Good morning. It is really good to be with you all this morning. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Pastor Mason, Derek, uh, Pastor Mason, and the leadership of both uh, the Boylston Congregational Church and CTK for the opportunity to come and share God's word with you. It's an honor, and I look forward to one day being able to be back here with you all in this beautiful sanctuary <clears throat> and uh, be able to do this uh, and see each other face to face. Uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. Uh, and I invite you to follow along with me on your screen or in your Bible as we read it together. Uh, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears the children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar starts from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you this morning as we look at this passage and recognize that there are lots of things for us to wrestle through this morning as Paul recounts for us a story from the book of Genesis, a story that, that perhaps several of us are not that intimately aware of, not familiar with. And, and we read the story and on the face of it, it seems a harsh and difficult to understand and not entirely clear why all of a sudden Paul is moving in this new direction. And so, Lord, we need you. Uh, we need your spirit to help us to understand what it is that Paul is doing as he is developing this argument, as he is presenting to us the, the beauty and the, the, the essentiality of the message that Jesus Christ came to save us from our sin. And so we need your help. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you would please help me uh, as, I, as I share your word this morning with your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Faith in Jesus Christ is essential, but it is not enough. In order to really be a Christian, in order to really follow Jesus Christ, it is important for us to also take on certain Jewish identity markers, such as dietary laws and circumcision. This is the message 
that this group of teachers who've come into the, the region of Galatia, modern day Turkey, uh, this is the message that this group of false teachers has been teaching and spreading. And this is the message that Paul is saying is dangerous and needs to be avoided at all costs. And at this point in Paul's letter, it's, it's really, it's taken on this very uh, passionate plea. In fact, it's really fascinating just before this particular passage, Paul is, uh, is taking on the, the voice of a woman in childbirth. Listen to what he says in verses 19 and 20. He says, my little children, he's very kind and loving. He says, my little children for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. There's this real passionate plea. He's saying, look, you guys are being seduced by this group of false teachers and what they're saying is dangerous and you need to pay attention. And I wish I could be with you in person in order to be able to really communicate the passion. It's, it's a lot, isn't it? Like preaching across a video screen, right? There's, there's something lost in the, in the ability to be together in the same space. And Paul is saying, as he's writing a letter, he's saying, it's, it's impossible for me to convey in this letter the passion that I feel about this message and the concern that I have for you in light of what is going on. And what he's saying simply is this, the, these teachers are telling you that you need to become physically like the children of Abraham in order to become spiritually like the children of Abraham. And Paul says, remember, Abraham had two sons. That's, that is the essence of what he is saying to us. He's saying, Abraham had two sons, and you need to understand the implication of that in order to be able to really get what it is that is going on. Now, it's important for us to understand that as Paul is talking here, that, that he is using the word figuratively or, or, or is that allegory. Everything that he's doing in this passage is he's, he's preaching to us, writing to us by means of an allegory. Now, what's an allegory? An allegory is a story or poem that's used to help communicate some truth that at first glance may not be readily evident. The point that Paul is making in using the story of Hagar is that, that, uh, that the danger that Christians were facing when they attempted to add to the message of the gospel. That's the allegory. That's what the allegory is trying to communicate. Abraham had two sons, and we can be spiritually descended from either of these sons. And if we're not careful, we will end up being spiritually descended from the, the wrong son, and therefore not actually enjoy the benefits of being the children of God and all of the promises that go along with that. Paul is warning the Galatians and he's warning us that trying to gain God's promise by our own efforts will lead to pain and spiritual bondage. And he's warning us by looking at this example from Abraham not to go down the same road. So what are we gonna do this morning? We're gonna have two points. The first point that we're gonna look at is simply to understand what's happening. We, we need to have Abraham's sin explained. That's the first point. And then in the second point, we're gonna see how Abraham's sin is to be avoided. And that's the central message of what Paul is trying to communicate. So in the first point, we're gonna, we're gonna revisit the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and their children. And in the second point, we're gonna see how Paul is weaving this into the central argument that he's trying to make. 
This past week, I was listening to an interview of, of Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson, for those of you that don't know, is the author of the book, Just Mercy. He's an activist and a lawyer and the founder of the Equal Justice, Justice Initiative. And he's being interviewed by Ezra Klein on a podcast. It's, a, it's an interview that's a few weeks old now, but I just finally got around to listening to it. And, and Ezra Klein asks him a question. He says, what is a healthy relationship that a society needs to have with its own history. And Stevenson responds and says that it's to know our history. This is what he says. He says, if you know, if you don't know your history, you can't really begin to understand what your obligations are, what your responsibilities are, what you should fear and what you should celebrate, what is honorable and what is not honorable. Now, the point that Stevenson is making is directly connected to the history of race and race relations in America. But, but the point he is making is applicable for those of us who are Christians, that very often we don't know our history. We don't know our story and that our story goes all the way back to the early pages of the Bible. And so we come like to a passage like this one today and we miss some of what's being communicated because we don't know the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar as well as we could. So we gotta go back, because that's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, remember Hagar, remember Sarah, remember Abraham. So we gotta go back to Genesis 15, Genesis 16, Genesis 17, in order to get the story. So in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you're gonna have a son. And through the son, uh, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Through the sun, you are going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. The only problem is that Abraham is in his late 70s, early 80s at this point, and he's got no kids. Uh, he and his wife Sarah have never been able to have children. They're here in the, in the latter half of their life, and they have no kids. And, and so you can imagine the, the, the frustration that comes in that, that could it possibly be true that in this, my old age, I would be able to have a son. And there's a lot more to the story, but what ends up happening is that Abram and Sarah get tired of waiting. Instead of waiting for the, the supernatural intervention of the Lord in their history, in their story, in their history, they decide to sinfully intervene into their own story. And Sarah comes to Abraham in Genesis 17 and says, hey, I have a plan, I have an idea. I think you should marry Hagar. Hagar is, my, is a Sarah's servant, her slave. While they had been in Egypt, she had become a part of this, this uh, group of people that travel around with Abraham. Abraham is an extremely wealthy man. Uh, he has got lots of people that work with him and are traveling in this large caravan that is his home and his, and his, his people. And, and Hagar is one of the women that's a part of that. And Sarah says, you should marry Hagar. You should have a child with Hagar. And this is the plan. Now, immediately we're, we're confronted with a lot of, a lot of questions, right? Uh, first of all, we're confronted with the question of polygamy. So here is Sarah inviting her husband to have another wife be a part of their marriage. Uh, and it raises questions, doesn't it? Because this is not how God intended marriage to work. Uh, and it's important for us to understand that while polygamy is being reported here, something that in fact happened, 
that scripture never approves, never condones polygamy in any of the characters. And in fact, what we see time and time and time again is that whenever polygamy is entered into, it always causes strife, division, and turmoil. And this story will, will present just that. We will see strife, we will see division, and we will see turmoil. Sarah will become embittered even more because Hagar will have a child and Hagar will become proud because she has been able to have a child and the woman who had been her mistress and is now another wife with Abraham, she is now seeing herself as being some ways superior to Sarah. You can, Sarah, you can imagine the tension that this presents. And so this is, this is what polygamy does. The second thing that we got to factor into this is the power differential. The reality is, if we're, if we're just being honest, uh, Abraham and Sarah are using Hagar to accomplish their own purposes. It's really very complex because Abraham and Sarah have the power. They, they, they're the ones who have authority in this relationship with Hagar, and they're telling her, this is what we want you to do. And it's very complex for Hagar because on one level, for Hagar to go from being a slave to being the wife of a wealthy uh, farmer or herdsman uh, is, is a social step up. But yet at the same time, as we read the story, as we look in Genesis, we see Abraham's sin in creating an absolutely toxic environment for his family. Uh, she agrees, right? She, not that she has much of a choice. She has the child. And so at age 86, Abraham has his first son. And this is who Paul is referring to as he is talking about the son of the slave woman, the son born according to the flesh. The flesh because this was their sinful intervention into trying to accomplish what God said he was going to supernaturally do. Paul is trying to create a distinction. Remember, this is an allegory. He's speaking figuratively here. And he's saying, this was a sinful choice on the part of Abraham, and it caused all kinds of problems in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And so here's the son who's born. Technically, his mom is Abraham's wife, but she, but she is always regarded as that woman who'd been a slave. And Paul picks up on that as he's talking about Hagar and Ishmael continuing to be in the status of slavery. Now, there's another like issue, right? We got to raise up and we got to address because all of these questions start emerging for us. I mean, is Paul actually condoning the imagery of slavery? No, but he's trying to use this as an allegory. He's trying to point to us to a spiritual truth that if we follow the teaching of the Judaizers, this group of false teachers who've come in, who are saying that faith in Jesus Christ is essential, but it's not enough, we will end up becoming spiritually enslaved. Now, Again, we've got, to, we've got to go back and understand what is slavery like in the ancient world, especially at the time of Abraham, because it's in some respects very different from the slavery that we are more used to understanding in the North American context here in the 21st century. First of all, and this is a, there's a book written by an author named Rebecca McLaughlin, excellent book called Confronting Christianity that's gotten a lot of accolades recently uh, for, the, uh, for the work that she's done in the book. And, and she is addressing 10 or 12 questions that confront 
Christianity. And one of the one of the chapters is on slavery, and she's actually talking about Hagar in that chapter. So it's, it's an excellent book. It's an excellent chapter. I recommend the chapter to you especially. She says this. There are three really important things that we have to understand. First of all, slavery in the ancient world, at least in the ancient Near East, which is the region of, of the world that we're talking about, was never directly connected to racial hierarchy. Uh, so what we see here in this story is that we have a Egyptian woman who is the slave of a Hebrew man. But if we move forward in time to the end of the book of Genesis, what we'll find is that a Hebrew man is the slave of an Egyptian man and woman, Joseph. So, so slavery was not connected to one particular race. Secondly, slavery was seen by some as a, as a valid form of employment that would prevent them from being destitute. So, so if the option was, I'm going to starve to death or I can hire myself out as a slave to somebody, many people would choose to become slaves simply because that was better than, in, in their mindset, that in their culture, it was considered better than becoming a slave. And a third part of that is that slavery in the ancient world actually made provision for people to advance. It was possible for people to rise to significant social positions, even as slaves. And Joseph, again, in the book of Genesis, is a great example of that. He, he enters into Potiphar's household as a slave, and he rises to become the most powerful person in Potiphar's household uh, with a lot of leeway, a lot of freedom, even though technically he's got the title of a slave. With all that said, the scriptures are still very clear about how dangerous slavery is, and there are repeated references in scripture about how Israelites were to treat slaves and how society was to conduct towards slaves. So it's a very nuanced understanding. Uh, and Paul understands that as he's, as he's speaking to his audience. So what do we do at this point? So now that we've kind of gotten an understanding of the story, of the background, we, we've, we've tried to address some of these questions that as we read the story are inevitably coming up in our mind, power differential, slavery, polygamy, what do we do? Well, I think it's important for us at this point to actually stop and make one observation by way of application. It's an important application for us this morning. Uh, and, and it is this, that we have to resist the temptation to hurry along the plans of God. We have to resist the temptation to hurry along the plans of God. In his book, uh, The Unhurried Life, Alan Fadling makes this point. Again, he's talking about the Hagar story. He says, Abraham's choice to act apart from God instead of waiting on his ways and his timing is a good and tragic example of the truth that the one who is in a hurry delays the things of God. One of the interesting things that's happened for me uh, throughout the course of this pandemic, and this is something that other people have shared with me that they've experienced the same thing, is that in hindsight, I'm able to reflect on just how hurried my life had become. When all of a sudden, all of my plans are stopped, every practice that my kids have to be at, every travel, all the travel I had lined up, everything that I had in my life all of a sudden stops and I'm home with my kids and my wife. 
uh, and I realized just how busy and hectic our lives had gotten. And the reality is that, that we don't always see that, right? Because part of American culture for many of us is to, is to be all constantly on the go, constantly on the move. And, and one of the, the things that God has been teaching me through the course of this season of life in this pandemic uh, has been to slow down and to not be as hurried. It's not a lesson I learned super well, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, and, and so part of what we see here in this passage, I think one of the ways that we can think about applying this passage is, is to be aware and sensitive of what it is that God is doing, how we're going to keep in step with his timing. I would venture to say that, that all of us who are, who are participating in this worship service right now, that, that there are some places perhaps where, where God is calling us to go, to, to follow him in a certain way, and we're not wanting to keep in step with this timing, and so we're staying put. Or that there are places where perhaps the Lord is calling us to wait and to trust, and that we are pressing on ahead and not trusting in the Lord like the way that we should. Uh, and so this story is a good reminder to us that we need to be aware of this temptation in our lives. Uh, and the way to be aware of that and the way to press against that temptation is to go to the Lord in prayer. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the scenario? Sagar goes, I'm uh, uh, sorry, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I have a plan. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about my servant Hagar. And Hagar is like, okay. And then, and then Abraham goes to the Lord and says, hey, Lord, Sarah came up with this crazy plan. What do you think? Can you imagine the Lord saying, that's an excellent idea. Go ahead and do that. Not at all what would have happened, right? The Lord would have come to him and said, are you crazy? Trust me. Wait on me. I've got this. I know what I'm doing. We have no evidence, no record that Abraham seeks the Lord. And so he presses on ahead when God is asking him to wait. And we end up with this really tragic situation. So that's the first kind of application as we, as we wrap up the first point. So, so we've got the backdrop. So now what is Paul teaching us? What is the sin that is to be avoided that Paul is trying to, to press us in? Uh, and it is this. He, he, is, he wants us to see that if we follow the teaching of these false teachers, these group that we commonly refer to today as the Judaizers, if we follow their teaching that we are going to be committing something very similar to what Abraham did. We're not going to be trusting in the Lord and doing what the Lord is calling us to do. Abraham had two sons, but only one son is the son of the promise. Sarah goes on after, after Ishmael is born. Eventually, Sarah goes on and she does have that son a few years later. Abraham, I think the age difference between them is four or five years. And, and, and so the son is born. And, and when we look at what Paul's passage and we take this, this group of verses that we looked at today and we step back and we look at the full scope of verses that we've got, what we see is that Paul has actually been building up to what he's teaching us in this passage. All the way back in chapter 3, verse 29, listen to what Paul wrote. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings heirs according to the promise. So Paul's already been introducing this idea. Let's talk about what it means to be a child of God. Let's talk about what it means to be a son of Abraham. And it's important, a little parenthetical thing, it's important that, 
Men and women are being called sons because the son was the heir. The son is the one that gets all of the inheritance. And the implication is that men and women, regardless of gender, right, we all have equal standing before God. We all have full access to all of the promises and all of the inheritance. And then as, as Paul continues into chapter 4, he begins to spell out for us what these promises are. Listen to what he says. He talks in verse 4 of chapter 4. He says, we have a new status. We've been adopted as sons. And then in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, we have a new power because God's spirit is dwelling in us. Think about that, 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 that in the ancient world, God was only present in a temple. And now in the New Testament, Paul and the other authors of the New Testament are teaching us, we are the temple. We have, we're, we're no longer going to have this distant relationship with God. His presence is going to actually be with us. And not only that, not only is his presence with us, we have a new relationship, uh, we have a new power. Not only is, uh, do we have a new status, we're adopted as sons, but we have a new relationship. We actually get to approach the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we get to address him as Abba Father. This is what he says in chapter four, verse six. And so Paul's point is really clear. He's been building up to it, building up, building up. And he says, look, look, faith in Jesus is essential. And it's also enough. The false teachers are saying, hey, faith in Jesus Christ is important. It's essential, but it's not enough. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Faith in Jesus Christ is not only essential, but it is enough. And so we are being called back to faith in Christ. We're being called back to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, if we follow the teaching of the Judaizers, we will in fact, just like Abraham tried to take God's promises and work them out in his own power, we will be taking God's salvation, just like Abraham did. We will be guilty of the same sin and we will by default become children of Abraham according to Ishmael. We will not have the promises. We will not have salvation. And that will lead us down the road of spiritual bondage because we will constantly be wondering, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Am I really loved? Is God really with me? Do you, you hear that? Is God really with me? Do I really have his presence? Do I really have his power? He, is he really, do I really have the relationship? All of these promises that God has given us, a new status, a new power, a new relationship, we'll never get to enjoy those things. That's what Paul is saying. So, and then, and this is the part that's really hard, right? So you've got this relationship uh, where, where Hagar and Ishmael, the Isaac is born, and, and it's just getting toxic in the family. We see this in Genesis 17, where things have gotten toxic and, and literally what ends up happening is that the Lord says, Sarah says, they've got to go. And the Lord says to Abraham, it's okay, let them go. And so Hagar and Ishmael end up leaving, right? Because, because what's been happening is that Ishmael has been harassing his younger half-brother. And you can imagine, right? You can imagine why. He's not been really loved, probably, the way that Isaac has been loved. There's going to be a difference in the way that Abraham treats Isaac, the son of the promise, versus the way that he treats Ishmael, the son of that woman. So, so Abraham's sinful plotting, Abraham and Sarah's sinful plotting intervention creates this really awful, tragic 
relational dynamic. And God in his wisdom says, all right, it's okay, send them away. Uh, and as the story goes, uh, Hagar and Ishmael are in the wilderness. They, 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 they think all hope is lost and the Lord meets them there and is gracious to them. And he provides water and he provides shelter and he, and he provides a promise. And he says, Hagar, Ishmael will be a great nation as well. So what is extremely gracious to them, even though, uh, even though that they were um, not, even though he was not the son of the promise? Paul takes that analogy. He's, remember, he's speaking an allegory here. And he's saying the same kind of thing has to happen for the Galatians. Listen to what he says, chapter 4, verses 30 to 31. What does the scripture say? And here, Paul is quoting the Lord. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, are we not children of, are we, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And then he goes on to sing chapter 5, verse 1. You are free. You have been set free. It was necessary for the integrity of the promise to be maintained for Ishmael and Hagar to go away. It's tragic. It's so sad. But God in his love and wisdom provides for them even as he's preparing to provide for Abram and Sarah, who've sinned against the Lord. And yet notice that even though Abram and Sarah have sinned against him, he doesn't go back on his promise. The Lord remains faithful to them in the midst of their unfaithfulness. This is the gospel, that God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. And so what Paul says is that it is important for us now to have that same kind of attitude towards this false teaching that the Judaizers are promoting to us. Get rid of them because what they're offering you is a road filled with pain, just like the pain that Hagar and Ishmael experienced. And this is not new. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount taught us the same thing. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go to hell. So often uh, preachers like myself will quote that passage and will be quick to say, Something along the lines of, now that doesn't mean that God wants you to physically cut your hand off. And I'm afraid that part of what ends up happening is that we soften the, the edge of what Jesus says here. We soften the edge. And as a result, we don't really count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. There's a quote I'm sure you've heard by a, a well-known German theologian and pastor at the time of World War II, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who famously wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. What Paul is saying here to the Galatians, what he's saying to us is you have to stop at no expense to remove the things that will stand in the way of being a disciple of Jesus. And right now for the Galatians, for the Galatians, that means that they have to have this very strict pushing out of the Judaizers. To get rid of these people, cast them out. Because what they are teaching you is so very dangerous. 
But then as we think about that for our own lives, Jesus calls us to follow him. He's calling us to a radical life of discipleship. He's calling us to have a ruthless attitude toward anything that would stand in the way of us following him. It's very difficult, is it not? This is where I really wish you all were with me so that I could, I could, I could interact with you. But, but, but the reality is that Jesus is calling us to not let anything stand in the way of our relationship with him. And so as I close, two questions. Two questions that I would uh, present to you, two questions that I would leave you with to help you reflect on what is it that Jesus wants you to do this morning in response to what we've seen out of Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 to 31. The first question uh, is this. How, how do we see ourselves, how do you see yourself tempted not to move on God's timing? To, to ask that question in a slightly different way, are there, are there places where God is calling you to wait and you're pressing ahead? Are there places where God is calling you to go and you're holding back? That's the first question. How do you see yourself tempted not to move on God's timing? The second question, how do you see yourself tempted to add to God's work? That's what the Judaizers are trying to do. They're trying to add to the work of Jesus on the cross. And Paul is saying you can not do that. If we begin to think that we can add to what Jesus has done by our own effort, we become like Ishmael. We will not enjoy all of the promises. We will not enjoy everything that it means to be a child of God by faith. Because, remember what he said in chapter 3, verse 29, if we have faith in Jesus, we are heirs according to the promise. We are children of Abraham. So where are the places where we are tempted to add to the work that Jesus Christ has done? Paul is warning the Galatians, and he's warning you, and he's warning me. The trying to attain God's promise by our own efforts on our own timetable will lead to pain and misery and spiritual bondage. All we need to do is look back at this one episode of Abraham's life. This is why Paul presents this example to us and says, don't, don't follow Abraham's example here. Follow his example in other places where we see him exhibit such tremendous faith. See, this is the amazing thing about the gospel, right? We, we can look at the, at, the, at the dark spots in the lives of the men and women in the scriptures. And it doesn't affect our faith at all because our faith is not dependent on people. Our faith is dependent on Jesus, the perfect man. And so Paul's calling us, you're free. Live free. Follow Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is essential and it is enough. Let's pray.